My name is David Brown, and I'm the host of a statewide public radio program called Texas Standard, which debuts statewide in, uh, I believe it's going to be March 2nd. I hear there's some significance to that day. <laughs> On behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm so glad you guys decided to join us this morning for the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival, and more specifically, what I hope is going to be a casual and candid conversation about saving the Texas coast. Now, we have uh, about 60 minutes in this room, but we're hoping to be able to devote as much time as possible to take questions from you, and I'm delighted that it's so well attended this morning. We're going to have microphones in the audience, but first, thing, first things first, if you would please silence your cell phones or pagers if you're a late adopter. <laughs> but you, someone got that joke. Uh, but that doesn't mean you, shouldn't, uh, you should turn off your, your smartphone altogether if you have one. In fact, if you want to Twitter, the hashtag is TribuneFest, and the specific hashtag for this panel is TTFEnviro. I want to introduce the panelists here, and uh, what a terrific panel the Tribune has assembled for this. Uh, first, want to go around and just get everyone just to introduce themselves very briefly and say their names, what, uh, what your position is. And then what I'd like to do, if it's all right, is do a more formal biography and then ask you a specific question that I hope each of you can respond to one-on-one. -on -one. So we'll have sort of double the introduction, if you will. All right? First, if you can get us started, Representative. Joe Desotel, State Representative, District 22, which is in Jefferson County, Southeast Texas, and currently chair land resource management and the select committee uh, with Senator Taylor on the coastal issues. My name is Laura Huffman. I'm the state director for the Nature Conservancy and also the director of our North American Urban Conservation. I'm Gary Morrow. I was Texas Land Commissioner for 16 years from uh, 83 to 98. I'm Larry Taylor, state senator for Senate District 11, which is Galveston County and parts of Harrison, uh, Missouri County as well. I'm C.J. Wax, the mayor of Rockport, Texas. I'm Helen Young, deputy commissioner of coastal resources for the Texas General Land Office. Representative Deshotel, chairman of the House Land and Resource Management Committee, he was first elected to serve Jefferson County's District 22 back in 1999. He's a Democrat elected by overwhelming margins in every race he's ever run. In other words, don't mess with him. <laughs> he's an attorney and a businessman born and raised in Beaumont. Uh, he studied at Lamar University before getting his law degree from the Thurgood Marshall School of Law at Texas Southern. I said that right, right? Uh, he is passionate about the Gulf Coast region, as I suspect a lot of us are. Um, you know, the name of this panel, uh, Representative, is Saving the Gulf Coast, but I think a lot of people would probably uh, fairly ask the question, what would you mean if, uh, if you said, I want to save the Gulf Coast? What's the priority? Well, Oftentimes, we look at the coastline as a different part of Texas. I mean, we went through this with windstorm. We're going through it with hurricanes. It's, people love to come down and visit, but when there's a problem, they say, that's your problem. You chose to live by the water. You take care of it. Mm. But uh, they forget about the fact that we contribute so much to the economy of Texas and really drive the oil and gas industry in Texas. Laura Huffman heads a team of more than 80 scientists, conservation experts, and staff as the Texas State Director for the Nature Conservancy. She's also head of the Conservancy's North American Urban Conservation Program, which means that a big part of her task is studying ways to reduce vulnerability to climate change. Uh, Huffman's been in public service for 20 years. Before she joined the Nature Conservancy, she was Deputy City Manager of San Marcos and Assistant City Manager of Austin, where she 
is an increasingly rare breed. She is an actual Austin native, so you're <laughs> looking at one. Uh, what, is, what is your interest in the Gulf Coast beyond your work at the Nature Conservancy? Did you spend a lot of time on the Gulf Coast as a young person? Oh, I did, yeah, as a native Texan. That's where summer vacations were. Um, you know, just to expand on the point that the representative made, I think part of our interest is in making sure that people understand just how important a body of water this is. It's not just relevant to the Texas economy, it's highly relevant to the national economy. The oil and gas that's produced in the Gulf of Mexico is how we're achieving energy independence. The seafood that's produced makes it the fish basket for the country. It's the drainage basin for the country. If you add the economies up, it's one of the largest economies in the world. And from our perspective, if you, we want the Gulf of Mexico to continue producing so many things on so many fronts, we're going to have to invest in its health. Uh, and its underlying health has to do with b building back some of those uh, natural infrastructure that has uh, disappeared over the years. Gary Morrow is a familiar face to longtime Texans and certainly to TV news junkies like myself. Uh, I've seen him on uh, several of the TV news shows. He served four terms as Texas Land Commissioner. I believe that's the second longest serving land commissioner in state history, and he's credited by many with restoring the office of land commissioner to a place of importance in Texas politics and certainly environmental stewardship. Among his many accomplishments, he helped convince the U.S. Senate to approve a treaty banning the dumping of plastics into the world's oceans. He was Texas state chairman for Bill Clinton's presidential campaign in 92 and 96, and more recently for Hillary Clinton's uh, state campaign in 2008. His memoir, Beaches, Bureaucrats, and Big Oil, One Man's Fight for Texas, was published in 1997. How's that for research? Well, that's good research. <laughs> All right. So uh, maybe 15 I, people read it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to ask you, I have to ask you, when you, when you hear people talking about the importance of environmental stewardship and, and balancing uh, economic development there, how do you do it? I mean, I know that your passion is protecting the environment. There are a lot of uh, forces out there. Uh, well, here's, I never saw there a, I never thought there was a dichotomy between protecting the environment and business growth. But a lot of people do see that. I know that, but I would suggest that, that probably the people who see that are the ones who don't care about the environment or who want us to retreat from the Gulf Coast 50 miles inland. Most of us want a real world. And one of the things I always tried to do, I'll never forget the first time I ran for office in 1982 when I was 33 years old. Uh, I was in Amarillo, Texas, and the high school senior class, I was speaking to the 18-year-olds because they had just registered to vote, explain what the land office was. And before I walked in the room, they had a vote. The senior class trip, they voted Every year, they either went to Chicago or to Port Aransas because Chicago was about the same distance from Amarillo as Port Aransas. <laughs> <laughs> That's some perspective right there, yeah. And these kids were committed to the Texas Gulf Coast, and they lived in Amarillo, Texas. And that convinced me that all Texans have a special place in their heart for the Texas Gulf Coast. And they don't think business or government can do anything but protect that, protect that resource for themselves and their kids and future generations. And once you get, you realize you're representing a statewide constituency, you're just not re representing Joe's people in, in uh, Beaumont or the mayor's people in Rockport, Rockport, you're representing the whole state of Texas. 
when we talk about don't mess with Texas beaches, and we talk about adopt a beach, those are just symbolic of how they expect Texas elected officials to protect the Texas coast. I used to say for all time, for all Texans. And, and I just think it was a great time to be land commissioner uh, because I got to spend most of my time worrying about how to build that constituency statewide and come up with a reasonable plan that balanced economic growth and uh, protecting that resource. Look, we have over a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure in the Texas Gulf Coast. We're not going to retreat. So we got to figure out how to protect that and at the same time protect the habitat and the things that make it so important. And that's just the fact of life. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be in public office. If you have to make that choice between the two, you shouldn't be in public office because you're being a coward and not facing the tough issues. Well, I wish you spoke your mind there. <laughs> <laughs> State Senator Larry Taylor is co-chairman of the Joint Interim Committee to Study a Coastal Barrier System. He's a Republican whose District 11 covers part of Brazoria, Galveston, and Harris counties. Prior to joining the Senate in 2013, Senator Taylor served in the Texas House with a tenure that began, I believe it was 11 years ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he runs an insurance business in his hometown of Friendwood, an enterprise that was founded by his father like 50 years ago. Taylor's also a longtime advocate for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. He serves on the board of the Foundation for Hope Village. Um, you're hearing about the importance of understanding this not as a proposition of, of trade-offs. You buy it? Oh, absolutely. And I think it can be done. I mean, I, we've shown that in a lot of different ways here in Texas. You know, we've actually cleaned up our air over the last 10 years more than any other state. At the same time, we've been growing industries. So the, they're not contrary. That If you work together and have reasonable and effective regulations, it can actually be done. And we've already proven that in many ways. Our, our, I've been on the ship channel recently. And not too many years ago, people used to bring their ships up the ship channel just to clean them off. All the stuff that was in the water would actually take barnacles and stuff off the ship. Today, it's, it's much cleaner. It's a very, uh, we've done a great job of doing that. And I'll just say Texas is a really a blessed state. And we're blessed with great natural resources. We're also blessed with a great geographical location. But I will say this about Texans. They've taken advantage of those natural resources, and they've created great things. The, you know, they had the, the vision, like the Allen brothers, when they were starting Houston, to go back and build that ship channel, which is now the second largest port in the world, mm -hmm. uh, the petrochemical complex. It's number one in the U.S. for, for many, on many different categories as far as a port. So we've taken those natural resources and we've, and we've taken advantage of those and made them big just like Texas. And, and I will say it's, it's about all of Texas because that, that area in particular where I live and, and where Joe lives, these are economic engines that help drive the whole state of Texas. And every state, every portion of this state derives benefits from what goes on along that coast. So we really are all in this together. And, I, and there's no way we can retreat. You know, I tell people all the time, People live there because that's where the water is, that's where the ports are, that's where the petrochemical is because it has to be right there. So you can't move these things inland somewhere realistically. So we have to do what we can to protect those areas and make sure that they're there to be economic engines for the future of Texas. In 2010, C.J. Wax was elected mayor of Rockport, Texas, where he continues to serve, having twice been reelected. Uh, much of his time in public service has been in the military, beginning with a presidential appointment to the Air Force Academy and continuing for more than three decades in the Pacific, the Middle East, Europe, the U.S., of course, and at all levels of command. Transitioning from active duty in 2002 as commander of the Army Air Force Exchange Service at the rank of Major General. 
In addition to his daily duties as mayor today, he worked with cities along the Gulf on the Coastal Bend Council of Governments and the Rockport Fulton Economic Development Council, among other organizations. Mayor, if you look out on that Gulf and someone says, how do we save this coast? What do you tell them? I tell them if uh, we don't, Rockport's going to disappear. Uh, but we need to look at it in two ways, it seems to me. One, we need to save our ability and enhance our ability to respond to the natural disasters that may occur along the coast. And the second thing we have to save ourselves from is the things that we do to ourselves. In the establishment of policies or uh, procedures or laws that have a detrimental impact on the coast. Well, what's the bigger threat? Is it natural or uh, Right now, I, I think we need to look more at ourselves than it is the natural. If, if you look at my particular city, uh, the vast majority of my economy is driven by tourism. However, have not had a uh, hurricane hit the city in about 42 years now. Lucky you. Yeah. Now, some will argue that your time is up, you know, but... <laughs> And they said that this year, as a matter of fact, just like they said it last year. Before that. Uh, but much more important to me right now is, the, uh, is water. Now, water is an issue all over the state of Texas, but in our cons local concern, there's two types of water. One, there's the water that you drink, and the second is the water that continues to benefit the estuaries and the bays right along our coast that uh, Lauren, I think, was, was talking about a few minutes earlier, that are hugely important environmentally, not to, not to my neighborhood, but to my state. Right. And uh, I have to uh, comment on the commissioner, we're not going to retreat from the coast. Texans have never been good at retreating at all, and we're not leaving. You're scaring me. I didn't mean I supported that. <laughs> I'm just saying that when you're in public office, there's people who come up to you and say, we need to pull back. Sea, re sea level is rising, blah, blah, blah. That's not going to happen. We've no, got not. all that infrastructure in place. People love the coast. That's right. That's why they come from Amarillo for their senior class trip. Yeah. Helen Young is Deputy Commissioner of Coastal Resources at the General Land Office. She's also the Texas delegate to the Coastal States Organization, and she serves on its executive committee. In the wake of the Deepwater Horizon oil disaster, Ms. Young served on the as the governor's delegate on the Gulf Coast Ecosystem Restoration Task Force, helping to develop the strategy for restoring the Gulf. In fact, I believe she took office, I believe you're telling me, like two days before five, the, five <laughs> before the, the, the disaster. She received her MBA at the McCombs Business School right here at UT Texas, and as part of her duties in the land office, she oversees the team that operates the Texas Coastal Management Program. I'm hearing, I don't know about you, but I'm hearing a lot of agreement here on this panel. What's the problem? Where are the obstacles? Well, I hear a lot of agreement, and there are a lot of challenges. Um, our coast is eroding at an alarming rate. The last report we had had until recently said 64% of the Texas coast is eroding at average of four feet per year, but ranging from two to 30 feet per year. Our most recent study from the UT Bureau of Economic Geology said 80% of our coast is eroding. So we have challenges in putting sand on the beaches to re-nourish them because wide beaches, large dunes with vegetation on them are our first line of defense against the huge storms that we have, like 
Hurricane Ike that caused $29 billion in direct damage and $142 billion of economic damage to Texas over the following 12 months. We also are losing our wetlands. Since the 1930s, we've lost about 150,000 acres of Texas. So, Would you say that one more time? Yes. According to the UT Bureau of Economic Geology, Texas has lost about 150,000 acres of land through erosion and subsidence, you know, relative sea level rise, these other forces that are going on. So we have a very dynamic environment. It's very challenging to get our arms around these issues. We talk about structural protection against the storms and things. We talk about non-structural approaches, but it is very complex, very dynamic. And one of the challenges I realized as I was on the task force trying to figure out what do we need to do and how do we represent the issues of Texas, we realized the issues on the upper coast are different than the issues on the lower coast. Mm. Some are similar, some are different. But um, so we did a, a study a brochure that actually highlights the importance of the Texas coast and did it by region addressing the issues of concern in each region as well as the wonderful assets that our coast provides to the state and to the nation. And you can find that online as well. Yes, on, it's online at www.shoringuptexas, we'll play on words, shoringuptexas.org, and you can request hard copies if you'd like from the land office. But our mission in this was to get the message of the Texas coast down to 16 pages, with those statistics where we can say the same message, it's important, it's critical, we need to do something, we need to act together. It's a terrific resource, and, and in preparing for this panel, I got a chance to check that out. But something that occurred to me, and, and occurs to me in a lot of the comments that I hear from this panel, is that while all of us, no matter where you live in Texas, have a stake in the health of the, of the coast, at the same time, you think about where this appears in our consciousness, in the news, for example, right? So you have a big storm in the Gulf, and suddenly people are concerned about what might happen. And quite often, it's framed in the context of it's coming to Houston, or it's coming to Austin, or, or you know, the effects might reach Dallas, or what have you. But not so much a sense of how this is going to affect the Gulf, or certainly not on a day-to-day -day level how, what's happening there on the Gulf. You have something like, I mean, I think that if you were to walk out on the street, and ask people, what was the last big event in, in the Gulf, I think you'd probably find most people would tell you it was the uh, BP disaster. That was almost five years ago. Okay? If it's not showing up on our sort of collective radar screens, is there a danger that issues of the coast basically take a back seat to all of the other issues that we're talking about here at TripFest? You're shaking your head. Absolutely. Now. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. The coastal zone, according to the Coastal Management Program, which is a federally authorized program um, that I think was implemented during Gary Morrow's term at the land office, um, defines the coastal zone as 18 coastal counties. Well, that's 18 out of 254 counties. That's a challenge. And I remember at America's Wetland Foundation Resilient Community Forums, they kept saying, well, Texas, being a coastal state, la, 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 Texas, being a coastal state. And I finally said, I think many people in Texas think of us as a state with a coast, right. not a coastal state. Right. And so we've really been trying to get the message out. And that's one thing we tried to do in our brochure. It's important to everyone. 
you know, 25 percent of our, um, you know, in, our um, energy needs, as Laura said, the, the fisheries, um, the four of the top ten ports in the nation are along the Texas coast. They carry 250, more than $250 billion worth of goods. If those ports get shut down, guess what happens to your goods, your clothes, your books, your shoes, your computers? They're not getting to you. When they get to you, they're going to have to have been trucked in from somewhere, flown in from somewhere. They're going to cost more. Same with your gasoline. After Ike, Atlanta's gas prices went up. I mean, we matter to the nation as well as, of course, to the rest of Texas. So we need to get that conversation going, and that's one reason we put that together. Let's all talk about our Texas coast. Go coastal. <laughs> Let me throw in a quick comment here, Please. and because your comment and several around the, the, uh, the panel have highlighted it. If, if you look at what we just heard, one of the fundamentals here is organizations or people trying to put a political definition onto what is essentially a natural environment. A TWIA does the same thing. The coastal zone is defined as 18 counties when the other 246, <laughs> give or take, are all dependent on thing that, things that happen there. Right. So why are we trying to impose a political definition on a natural phenomenon? I, I would argue there has been no single successful story about that. But having said that, how do you get people's political players' attention if you're not defining it that way? Awareness. You have to continually raise awareness of things like this and what Lauren has just talked about and what Joe said earlier, Gary said, everybody has said, is that the things that happen on the coast matter to the entire state of Texas. But look at this room. We're half full, if that. Right? I realize that there are competing priorities. And the problem, it seems to me, is how do, you, uh, how do you arrest that interest? How do you capture that? I mean, it's one thing for the land office to put out its brochure and to put together something that's useful in that conversation. But if, if this is the extent of a conversation at a political festival, I, I mean, on the one hand, I'm encouraged by the fact that we have as many people as we do. On the other hand, I find it somewhat, alarming is a little bit too strong a word, but concerning. No? Well, you know, one of the issues, and it's not just on the coastal issue, it's just that we as a humans are just reactionary. It's been eight years, seven years since we had a hurricane, so it's not on anybody's mind. So, we but do we need a VP disaster? We go from news story to news story. I said when... Every day you heard about Robin Williams and then Joan Rivers. I said, you're not going to hear anything about Robin Williams again. And you didn't. It was Joan Rivers. I mean, we just forget. We go to the next store. We go to the next store. And how do we get around that? I don't know. But we need to learn from, from, from history because exactly what we're going through here, a group of us are going to, the, to Holland to look at their system. And if you read the history of that, mm -hmm. People reacted the same way. They couldn't get any interest in this, and then a storm came, and everybody was interested. They formed all these committees. They did all this, and then it faded away because there wasn't any storm. So it becomes a priority when you have an emergency. It becomes a priority, and it's just, it just how we are as human nature. We have a big, big job to do to get this on the front burner when there isn't a disaster that just happened. And that's, that's a tough, that's a tough well, job. And I'd argue we actually have that opportunity right before our very eyes right now. We're starting to see money move from the oil spill, the fines. Uh, the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation just 
uh, funded the single largest conservation project in the history of the state of Texas. And it was funded through oil spill fine monies. Right. And the extent to which we start highlighting that um, will help us in the absence of a disaster, but the presence of something that's actually positive show Texans how we can protect natural resources and how we can do it at scale given these very rare one-time monies. And I think the answer to your previous question, which is if there's all this agreement, how come there aren't all these solutions, is because the scale of the problems in the Gulf of Mexico are enormous. Mm -hmm. And in order to fix some of these problems, in order to restore 50% of the lost wetlands, seagrasses, and oyster reefs will take a huge investment. And I think the money that's flowing in from the oil spill actually gives us a one-time opportunity to make some at-scale investments. And highlighting those to the rest of the state and showing the rest of the state what this produces, not only in terms of natural treasures, but in terms of real live protection of natural resources that the rest of the state depends on is a very rare opportunity. But who carries that torch? I mean, who, who's the advocate that's out there talking about these sorts of wins, these sorts of victories? Who's out there? I mean, it seems to me a lot of it falls on the shoulders of, the, frankly, the general land office. Now, I am, I'm an outsider. I don't have a dog in this hunt except to the extent that I do as a Texan, right? But, but having said that, I don't see, I, I'm not hearing a lot of it as an outsider. I well, mean, I'd are agree all with everybody. Right? I'd agree. I mean, I'd say it's not just one agency. In fact, I think if you put it all on GLO, it's destined to not be successful. Unfortunately, I totally agree I think with you need all of the partners. You need the elected representatives. You need the local governments. You need the state agencies. You need the nonprofits. I mean, this just has to be the all-in program. But do you believe that's happening? I do, actually. Yes. Partners, that's what is going on. A lot of partnerships. Even to put this together... We started with 40 technical experts or more up and down the coast to get their input on what are the issues of concern. Then we did local official meetings, vetted it with them and their invitees to say, are we on point? Are these your issues? And our intent is to keep drilling down on those. But um, if I can jump back to Representative Deschatel's comment about the news, the news, one thing that just has stuck in my mind so much and was so apparent when I was on the task force is Hurricane Ike was like the forgotten storm. Mm. Five days later, or roughly five days, Lehman Brothers went down and the whole recession happened. Right. People forgot about Ike. We didn't get any of that Katrina-type money. We didn't get any of that Superstorm Sandy-type money. We were just forgotten. And we went in there and fixed ourselves up. You know, work with FEMA, of course, so there is some federal money. But we didn't get the $16 billion worth of structures that Louisiana got just funded and said, cut through all the core bureaucratic processes and get those things built. We got nothing. There's a legislative session that gets underway very shortly. If you had the ear of lawmakers here in Austin, what do you tell them? What, what do you, I mean, you have, we have a couple of lawmakers who will be here in Austin. What, what, uh, I didn't know a session was coming, really. <laughs> <laughs> this just in. Um, so what, what's, what does Austin need to focus on in this upcoming legislative session when it comes to saving the coast? Well, I'll, I'll just say we have several things we're working on. Um, you brought up Twia, the windstorm. That's one of the issues about protecting the coast is protecting the people that live along the coast. And that's obviously a big issue. And, and as far as Ike, I can tell you my area, we haven't forgotten about it because that's, that's where it hit. <laughs> so we have been dealing with it, but Joe is very correct talking about the storm surge protection. We are working very active on that and getting moving forward, uh, trying to get some type, type of protection so it doesn't happen again. 
Unfortunately, that's a long, arduous process. Uh, the, the core process, if it goes to the normal stages, is seven to eight years once we finally get a plan. And we're trying to even get a plan at this point, six years after the fact. But that's a big, big issue that we're working on. And, and I'll also agree with what Joe said about crisis. As a people, you, you go by priorities. And, and the crisis is a priority at the time. And you know, our job as coastal legislators is to keep these things moving forward, even when it's not on the front page. And I think we have the ability to do that when we are doing those types of things. But, you know, we've had some pushback we're having to get through. But uh, I, I think this session, I'm very optimistic we'll get some of these things done. As far as the uh, storm surge protection, that, I think that'll be a federal as well as a state issue. We need to come up with a plan that we can take to the feds. And, I'll, and I will be more than happy to remind my federal uh, partners in the government up there that they did spend $16 billion protecting New Orleans, which has a sixth of the population that we have in the Houston region a sixth of the industry, and they spent $16 billion. We're talking about a plan right now, maybe 5 to $10 billion, which is obviously not just an economic engine for Texas, but for the nation. So it is a national, of national interest to do that. So I, I think we're working on it, but it is hard. And I'll just give you one more example. Water, that wasn't on the front burner until the drought. That's just the way it works. And since we started having this drought and everybody's talking about water, we've passed money to, to help appropriate and get some of these projects moving forward. So it... It does take crisis, unfortunately. I do not want to wait until another storm hits and wipes out the Port of Houston for us to finally say, okay, let's get this done. Here. It's our job to keep carrying that, that message forward and getting it done proactively and not reactively. I was talking with a gentleman who does, uh, he's actually in California, and he's a demographer, and he was involved with, uh, going way back to the 80s, involved with the Megatrans project. And he's been watching the rise of Texas somewhat ruefully from his perch in Orange County. <laughs> and he has identified Texas, uh, and more specifically Houston, I should point out, as the next international city. He believes that it's the, it's the Tokyo of the next decade, or the, the Los Angeles, the port of L.A., so that, more to the point. But he had something that was a little alarming to me when he, when he said, you guys don't yet fully understand what you're sitting on there. The people of Houston, the people of Texas, don't yet understand what it means truly to be that international city that you're about to become. And I think he's talking about the public at large. But he says the impact, just, just in terms of the environment on that Gulf Coast, it's just, unless you're prepared, and I don't know it. Are we prepared? to be that next big international? I mean, thinking about the Gulf Coast and thinking about its proximity to Houston and how that could become the next great port. I mean, we saw, we've seen all these changes that are happening in global economies. Well, um, I would say we're not becoming an international. We are an international city. We're there. We're ready. We have some of the most diversified populations within the Houston area today. I mean, 90-something languages being spoken in some of our schools. If that's not an international city, I don't know what is. And we have the potential to even move further up with the Panama Canal expansion, and we want to be prepared for that. So we have issues that we're doing, but as far as the Houston area, I think we recognize that we are already an international city. We are trying to make strides. Once again, another crisis we're having to deal with is transportation. You know, we do have that border issue, the border problem we're all hearing about. It's people coming from California to Texas, right. and we're growing by leaps and bounds. We've got to have room for all those people to drive and move around, and plus with all the cargo. If you, if you are an international port and that cargo gets to your port and then you can't move it from there, you haven't helped yourself. So we're, we have several things. We're working on multiple fronts. 
But I, I would say we are already an international city. We're just becoming more and more of an important type of Don't these city. needs, these infrastructural needs, pose some unique challenges for saving the coast? Well, certainly they do. And one, and one of the issues we're looking at as far as the uh, dike system or protective system of the Port of Houston, uh, we, have to, we have to be more broad-based, and we can't just design a system that will protect the refineries on the Gulf Coast. Because if we do that, then what about all the people that work at those refineries that live farther inland? We need to design a system that will protect the citizens on the coast, not just we could build a wall of the ground industry and you can have it and not get a drop of water, but nobody can get to work, nobody can get there. So we need to be, we need to think, think this through and get a system that will really protect everyone so that we can have an economy that bounces right back. And those are, those are the kind of issues that we're trying to balance. How do we, how do we protect that? Because, of course, industry is really happy to protect industry and help us and give resources to help protect their, their, their physical facility. But that isn't enough, and we've got to do much more than that. Well, um, I, I would add that there's some nice environmental efforts that are sitting alongside these initiatives. Uh, Rice University launched an effort where they're looking at how they can create natural barriers for mm -hmm. storm defense also. Mm -hmm. One of the big focal points for uh, Restore Act money, which is oil spill fine money, will be how can we get into Galveston Bay and do some very large at-scale restoration of things like oyster reefs. And so long as we're thinking about how we can restore the natural infrastructure, which, by the way, provides some really great storm defense also, then we can get you know environmental dividends at the same time we're solving some of these problems of storm defense. And I think that is a shift in thinking, and I think Houston is really starting to understand not only can that natural infrastructure solve the traditional problems in combination with traditional infrastructure, but it tends to be cheaper, and it produces all sorts of quality of life benefits. And I think that's why you're seeing a great big city like Houston starting to really embrace uh, a, a a much more dynamic set of solutions to these problems. David, I might want to say something just to be controversial, <laughs> since I don't have to run for office anymore. <laughs> well, go for it. And I don't generally uh, get involved on a day-to-day -day basis. When there, it took almost 20 years to create a coastal management plan, literally. Bob Armstrong spent 10 years and was defeated with his plan and it actually cost the general land office 40% of its budget. When I took office, it took me 10 years to get it back on the front burner. Mm -hmm. The only reason that's worth talking about is when the people here at this, in this panel, they are really committed, regardless of party and pol political affiliation, to making the Texas Gulf Coast the best place in the world to live and protect it for future generations. I'm convinced of it. Here, Both, here. And I'm convinced, just for the record, that we institutionalized that cooperation through the Coastal Management Plan. And it's a decentralized institutionalization of forcing us to deal with problems in a systematic way. Now, what you can't do, and this is the controversial part, what you can't do with a coastal management plan that institutionalizes a systematic way to bring nonprofits, government, local, fed, to, you can't institutionalize real leadership. I mean, I was disappointed. I'm a Democrat. Wendy Davis didn't mention coastal issues last night in the hmm. debate. Hmm. If I'd been a Republican, I'd been disappointed. Greg Abbott didn't mention a single word about 
the coastal issues that we all face, and they are very, very important to us. When you said the general land office is the focal point, I came to the conclusion during my terms in office that it was my job to bring attention to the Gulf Coast and represent those people in Amarillo and those people in Rockport and talk about the, co the, the Gulf Coast and the coastal issues. I used the Adopt-A-Beach program as a way to mobilize people. We had 50,000 people twice a year go clean mm. up the beaches. Right. And I just think that w I like your, Jerry, Jerry Patterson. He and, and I were at A&M together. He was a swimmer. I was a football player. He was a great guy then. He's a great guy now. He's been a good leader. But I think the land commissioner, because of their constitutional responsibilities in managing the submerged lands, is the logical person to be the amplifier and the uniter, the call to action to, to solve our Gulf, Texas Gulf Coast issues. But I also think I served with four governors, Clements, White, Richards, and Bush. And the governor has to be involved. But there's so many things going on, unless somebody and it doesn't have to be the land commissioner. He's just the obvious, or she's the obvious person. It can be a state senator, it can be a state rep. Somebody's got to amplify and keep right. it on the front burner. Right. And look, there's so many immediate issues. I understand why they don't get up, you know, doesn't, they don't wake up in the morning. And believe me, when you know, you know how you get 50,000 people to go to a, adopt a beach program and get an airplane three or four times a year and go have press conferences and beg them to come out. I mean, it, it takes weeks and weeks and time, hours and hours in airplanes to get people mobilized. And all I'm saying is somebody's got to take that on. It might be the senator here. It might be Joe, the state rep over there. I hope it's the next land commissioner. I saw uh, his interview with uh, the Texas Tribune. I think he seems to have a, a, an awareness of the Texas coastal issues. I just think we need a leader with some vision to start talking about the coastal issues. And the best way to get a leader is to start your own parade and some politician will figure out a way to be the leader. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my controversy. Maybe that person sitting in the room right now, we, we don't know. Um, maybe it's someone on this panel. Uh, I would love to have an opportunity to open this up to any questions that you folks might have because a big part of this is the conversational element. Are we going to have a microphone that's going to be going around? Is that the, is that the plan? Right there, right there. There's two stands. Okay, good, good. Barely see him. If you would, please, just say your name, and, and uh, rather than go into a speech, if you could keep it to a question, I sure would appreciate it. I'm Robin Schneider with Texas Campaign for the Environment. What we've seen a lot of the... Um, plastic and, uh, in, the, uh, in the Gulf and in uh, other waterways. Um, Mayor, um, are you plan prepared to take some action like uh, with a bag ordinance? And what can other um, communities do to keep plastic out of the ship channel, out of our waterways, and out of our environment? Uh, everybody in the coastal bend, I think I can say that without fear of contradiction, is concerned about the amount of plastic that uh, we really can't see, that we know is out there. Uh, we, we in the city of Rockport uh, are working on a draft ordinance right now uh, 
as part of the Skip the Plastic program, of which we are a member, uh, to ban uh, single-use plastic bags within our community. Most all of the communities on the coastal bend are doing that, but let me point out one other thing that is unique to the city of Rockport. Uh, Rockport Center for the Arts uh, took a bunch of artists out on the Gulf side of San Jose Island, and they cleaned up maybe a thousand yards of the island and came back with five gazillion pounds of plastic. And these artists uh, took that plastic that they had found on the island and created artwork out of it, and it was a specialized exhibit in our Rockport Center for the Arts, uh, focusing, raising awareness, focusing on public awareness of the issue of plastic. And that was part of our groundswell campaign to get public involvement. In our, some of our sister cities, Corpus Christi, is looking at the same thing. Others along the Gulf, the Gulf Coast uh, are all interested, are all not interested, are concerned about that problem. Uh, hi, I'm J.B. Bird. I work at the university here, and thanks for coming. Uh, I'd like to know from each of the panelists, just very quickly, what you would identify as the top one or two issues facing the coast. I would think that it is, is getting the rest of the state aware of the significance of, of, of the Gulf Coast. And when uh, Larry and I had our hearing in Galveston on the need for a barrier, need for protection, I made the statement that this is just as relevant. We were holding it in Galveston. I said it would be just as relevant to hold this in Dallas, Texas, as it is to hold it in Galveston, Texas because it's just as important to Dallas as it is to us. And we need to, I think our number one issue is educating our colleagues and the rest of the state about the significance of the coast and the fact that the coast is Texas. It's not a, it's not a part of Texas. It's not something we have to deal with. It is Texas as much as Texas as Amarillo or any other, any other portion. And I think if we could ever do that, then much of the issues we're discussing now would not be an issue, and we'd have the necessary funding, and we'd have the necessary programs in place. So I, I would think that awareness of the significance and the relevance and, and the fact that it is Texas is, is the number one issue in my opinion. Number one issue? Um, I, I would say from an environmental and conservation perspective, there are three things that there's very widespread agreement on that we need to do in the Gulf of Mexico. We need to restore the basic filtering systems of oyster reefs, seagrasses, and saltwater marshes. They're over 50% gone. We need to make sure that freshwater inflows from the rivers and streams in Texas is both quantitatively and qualitatively healthy for the Gulf of Mexico and shoreline protection. Those three building blocks uh, from an environmental perspective are the priority. I think I can just reiterate my previous position and agree with Laura and Joe. Uh, I agree with all four of their positions, but also leadership. We just need people to get elected statewide office. They ought to be required to, to make some kind of pledge to help the Texas Gulf Coast. <laughs> I don't know if I can know to do that or not. Uh, <laughs> Protecting the people, <clears throat> and that's both the people by their windstorm insurance coming up, some kind of a reasonable solution to provide, protect for those folks that live there, and protecting the things that the people have made, the petrochemical complexes, the, the business, the economy down there. And then the other thing is the coastal erosion, and I think we need to do a lot more 
looking at types of structures and things that we can do to help maintain that. You know, when we talk about the state being all tied in together, part of the portions of the coast are having problems is tied in with the people in upstate mm -hmm. and how that water is being slowed down and not being able to bring this, the sand that it used to bring to the coast. So we are all linked together. So, but that that probably be my two priorities, two and a half really. <clears throat> um, my two are probably pretty simple. Uh, it's kind of where I began, and that is water. Lauren's comment: fresh water to reinvigorate our bays and estuaries. Uh, water across the state is an issue, and that's one of those things. And this leads me to my second point: don't put political boundaries on natural phenomena. Hurricane Ike did not care where the county boundary was. And our infrastructure doesn't care where Calhoun and Matagordo change because it has to support the entire Gulf Coast. The coastal bend is a definition that, is, that does not recognize political boundaries. Well, I agree with all the other comments. Um, and I'm tempted to address kind of a more practical matter. Yes, we have erosion. Yes, we're losing wetlands. Yes, we have to protect people, infrastructure, industry. And one challenge we have at the land office is we don't have a dedicated funding source. So every two years, we wonder if we'll have a program. Makes it a little hard to develop a long-term plan. <coughs> and we, I think we need a long-term plan, comprehensive, where we're looking at the different regions, their issues of concern. That's how we can identify what needs to happen in the upper coast, what needs to happen in Coastal Bend. Maybe totally different solutions. Some may be soft structures, soft approaches. Some may need hard structures, coastal barriers. Um, but I think it would be really helpful if we did have someone charged with developing a plan for the Texas coast. We're starting this brochure, and the issues of concern is kind of a basis to build on, but I certainly think Texas would benefit, like Louisiana and Mississippi, from having our comprehensive coastal plan. Yeah. Uh, my name is Darcy Rachkowski, and my question is, uh, what about the fisheries? Uh, because if the coasts are ignored, the fisheries are even less so, and most of the fisheries are getting uh, Badly, badly either poached and, and are collapsed. So what is your solution to, to that? Excuse me. We have some issues we're working on with illegal fishing with our federal partners, which is a big, large part of that problem. And a lot of awareness, once again, is being brought to that issue uh, to help with that because that is a you know, serious issue. We try to manage, it, manage our wildlife and our fisheries but if you have people coming in from outside are not playing by the rules and running huge nets or taking all kinds of fish with them, not just what they're after, that's a real problem. And that's a, that's a federal, you know, once they get outside our, our waters or state waters, it's international, it's uh, federal waters and then international. So they're coming into our area and taking these fish. And there is some awareness being raised on that very issue right now. Uh, I've been involved in several meetings on that, that issue. So that is being moved to the forefront. Like I say, there's so many issues we're working on, but that's one of them that another group of people is, is pushing and promoting, and I'm happy to support those efforts because that's, that's obviously affecting a lot of our industry al along the coast. Take a question over here. Hi, yeah, my name is Susan Adams. I'm a volunteer with the national organization called the Citizens Climate Lobby. 
And it sounds like a lot of the threats that you're talking about, like the rising tides, the erosion, the storm surges, all of these things are worsening with climate change. So I kind of wanted to know what your thoughts are about that and also what we as an organization can do to kind of help educate people and build public support for actions to address climate change and how it's going to impact our Gulf Coast region? I'll, I'll say this, the, the models that we use at the Nature Conservancy in order to identify the kinds of projects we should do and where we should be doing them include sea level rise. Uh, and we've done sea level rise modeling all throughout Galveston Bay with lots of partners and lots of stakeholders. So when we're proposing projects specifically in that area, we're doing it with that information in mind and with anticipating sea level rise. So for us, that's stitched into the on-the-ground conservation work that we do. And I'll, I'll just hope that we can, we can come to a, a political solution to work on this, because I know there's a lot of difference between the parties as to what causes uh, what, climate change, whether it's climate change or natural whatever. The fact is we have to deal with the problem of rising water. And we have to deal with it, whether it's because of man-made this or, or natural. It does not matter, because once you drown, you drown. It doesn't really matter what caused it. So I think the, the climate change issue is a long-range long range issue, because even if we all say it was caused by climate change, it would take hundreds of years to reverse what those issues are. But it, it, we shouldn't wait that long to solve the problem of the rising water. And I think that's what we need to focus to keep it out of politics, I don't think anybody questions what your, your statistics of the lost acreage, the lost uh, uh, four, two to four feet per year. We need to focus on that, deal with that, and, and, and we can affect those other changes in, in, in a longer range. When we looked at the things in the Netherlands, when we talk about preparing for a 100-year storm, they're doing there for, for 12,000 year events and 4,000 year events. They're, they're long range planning. And that's what we're going to have to, we're going to have to be able, and that's, and that's what they're, they're set for. And that's what they designed for because we never know what's going to happen. You know, because it hadn't happened in a hundred years doesn't mean it won't happen. And so you can't, you can't deal with that issue. And if we could get the, the, the politics out of the issue and deal with the facts that we have today and, and resolve those, I think we'd be all be better off. I'd like to echo Joe. I used to uh, be very skeptical of the whole climate change issue. And then in 1996, it was 100 degrees on my birthday. My birthday's February 21st. <laughs> and since then, it's been 100 degrees on my birthday three times. <laughs> Now, I'm, I don't know, I'm not a scientist. I went to Texas A&M. I got a law degree here at UT. But I know it's not supposed to be 100 degrees on February 21st. <laughs> and it's going to cause some problems. And we better start dealing with those problems. And I think that's what Joe's saying. Right. I don't want to have the fight about who, what, why, or when. I want to have the fight about, okay, we got a problem. How are we going to solve it? And uh, as far as I'm concerned, whether we like it or not, the coastal erosion issue, the rising sea level. I mean, all you got to do is look at the 12,000-year the history. And we better start worrying about it because, you know, 40, 50 percent of our population is going to be impacted in a very significant way on the Texas Gulf Coast. And it's going to take some long-range planning and some long-range investment. And God only knows these guys know much better than I, but I've been through a lot of legislative sessions. 
And when you start talking about anything with the horizon more than eight or nine months, it's hard to get it funded. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, my birthday's in August, and it's 100 every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but but <clears throat> let me echo what Representative Deschatel said. From a local perspective, I am much more concerned with the erosion of my beachfront, with the deterioration of my bays and estuaries, and the, the rise of seawater, and I really don't care what caused it. That's right. it, it. I can't fix that, regardless of what the cause was, mm -hmm. but I can try and save my coast, and that's what I work on at the local level. And to me, if I can add, we don't have to worry so much about where the water is. We've got the development. It's all fine if there's a big, wide beach in front of it. But it's when it erodes and erodes and erodes and subsides, and then the water's up against the structures, the road, the refinery, then is the panic. If we can continually re-nourish our beaches, keep them out in front, you know, restore these wetlands that protect areas, then we don't, we, we can at least push the problem forward. You know, we maintain it rather than wait till there's a crisis. We do have a sand deficit on our Texas coast, so we have to identify where those sand sources are, use them wisely, but it takes a lot of money, and it takes a lot of planning to do one of these big beach nourishment projects. It takes often years to get it all planned and permitted by the Corps of Engineers, reviewed by Fish and Wildlife, all these different entities, and when every two years we start over, it's kind of hard to get that long-term, where do we need to put sand along each area of the Texas coast? We've just got a, a few more minutes left. If we can just take a couple more questions very, very quickly. Yeah, my name's Tom Vaughn. I'm going to ask you guys to speculate, perhaps. I understand, you know, the importance of the Houston Ship Channel and all the refineries and the petrochemical along the coast. And my question is, if the United States hopefully will become energy independent in my lifetime, maybe not, but uh, would it make sense to start building refineries away from the coast? Well, I'll just say once again, it's a matter of logistics. The reason that they're there is because that's where the port is. Um, so it's a matter of logistics and savings. Yeah, but my point is, if we're not going to bring tankers in from Saudi Arabia, if we're going to be energy independent in this country using petroleum, solar, wind, uh, but do we still need the refineries on the coast if the oil is not coming from abroad? What, what we need to remember, though, is that especially I'm from the Corpus Christi area, our port is the fifth largest in the country. And we are looking to expand that and improve that to permit export of that asset. And you, those refineries are located, the ones that we already have in the Corpus Christi area, and some of the huge new development that is international uh, going on down there from Austria and China, uh, TPCO and Chenier and a few others. Much of that is based on not only the viability of the Texas economy, but also the capability of the Port of Corpus Christi and subsequently the Port of Houston to support outbound energy sources. 
And I think that is the real importance of energy independence for the United States. We're doing the same thing uh, uh, down in our area. ExxonMobil has a permit for FERC to export natural gas, so the Chenier right across the waterway to export, and there's another LNG facility being planned right down the road to export energy. From, and so it makes sense to have them right there, the, the refining process. Unfortunately, we have we are flat run out of time. We are right at the 50-minute mark. Uh, we have more questions, obviously. Um, what I'd invite you to do is those who can stick around and continue the conversation to the extent that we can. I believe we may have to surrender the room in just a few more minutes. But I want to thank you all, and I want to thank the panelists for a very lively and stimulating conversation about how we might save the Gulf Coast.